All right, everybody, welcome back to Anonymous Question segment number 1.5, because this is the first time I gave anonymous questions for my abnormal psychology class, uh, and I got halfway through them on the last episode, so hopefully this one I get the rest of the way through <laughs> all of these. These have been wonderful questions so far. I really enjoy answering them. Um, we'll probably start to see some overlap here after a little bit, um, but uh, until that time... Um, I will answer each one as fully as I can. So, let's get started. How does the pressure of being a first-generation college student weigh negatively on a student's mental health? Uh, good question. Um, you know, every student and every person is different, so it's hard for me to make generalizations about this, um, especially because I'm not super um, well... Uh, um, I don't have a lot of knowledge in the literature on first-generation college students and mental health. Uh, but I will say this. We know that first-generation college students are more likely to drop out and have a higher degree of stress um, than other college students. And the reason for that is they have, ha they have fewer examples of what successful college looks like, and they may receive sometimes pressures from home um, about their choice of going to college. So when they, when uh, someone who has a bunch of people in their family who have gone to college, when they struggle, they have people who they can call and who can say, um, you know, I know exactly what you're going through. I failed a few um, tests too, and here's what happened with me. And you know, so someone who can kind of support you in a different way than if you are a first generation college student and you call your family and they're like, yeah, well, maybe this isn't the right thing for you. Maybe you, you, you know, you should come home and you can get a job doing this and, and things like that. Um, now I do want to say that, you know, college is not the thing for everybody or for every person and people can be super duper successful um, and super duper happy without a college education. But a lot of people for the careers that they want and the things that they want, they need a college education. So I'm not saying that the families who have not gone to college is anything wrong with those folks. Um, and there's nothing wrong with their advice, but they are, that advice is coming from their experience and that can add additional pressure to a first generation college student. Um, Typically, too, um, despite what I just said about people being perfectly happy and successful, first-generation college students tend to come from lower socioeconomic status families, so they don't have as many resources. Um, I find, and this is anecdotal, I find they often need to work um, while they go through college and sometimes work more than one job um, in order to help fund that. Um, and also, they um, tend to take on more student loans and, and that sort of thing. Now, again, that is not the case for every first generation college student. And there are certainly lots of third, fourth, and fifth generation college students who work. I'm not trying to say that this applies to everyone, but I think more often we see this among first generation college students. Um, and so that additional stress and pressure can negatively impact someone's mental health. People who are under a lot of stress and pressure are more likely to experience mental health issues. And so it's important for them to pay attention to their own mental health. So if they see themselves getting super stressed out, it's important for them to use whatever coping strategies they've established to, um, to help with that, uh, to, to uh, improve their, um, their well-being by um, engaging in the coping strategies that they've learned. And sometimes those coping strategies are problem-based so they look at a problem, they tackle it, they figure out how to get more of their homework done, then maybe they need to, you know, 
take fewer classes next semester. Maybe they need to go to the professor to get some help. Maybe there's a bunch of different active coping strategies. When those are exhausted, it's great to go to more emotion-focused coping strategies. Emotion-focused coping strategies on their own don't solve a lot of problems, and so they're not real effective in the long term. But in the sh- but when problem solving has already occurred, emotion-focused coping strategies are great. So that's the time to hang out with friends, take a break, um, you know, do those various things that that are kind of like distracting you and getting you away from the problem, um, as opposed to like taking major steps to actively solve it. So yeah, the short answer is, um, does it weigh negatively on a student's mental health? Maybe. There's maybe a higher, a slightly higher likelihood among first-generation college students um, for that because of the added stressors um, if they lack as much support. Next question. Uh, we saw the study of little Albert, and it demonstrated how a phobia can be created. After a few weeks of the experiment, little Albert showed less fear but if the fear remained the same and months or years pass by and it does not improve, what can be done so that the baby is not afraid anymore? Um, I know that uh, uh, taking therapy often helps, but I have heard that therapy, not in all cases, helps people with fear. In that situation, what do you recommend the patient do? Uh, so if someone, so uh, little Albert, they it was a study that showed the development of phobia in a small child. It's not... Um, a study that we do anymore or it was it was kind of you know it wasn't pleasant to watch because they basically made a loud noise every time he was presented with a white rabbit and the combination of those two things together um taught him that basically rabbits were something to be feared um then they you know presented him with the rabbit without the fear stimulus and he eventually learned yeah this rabbit's okay so frankly treatment later wouldn't be that different um this was again this question was posed early on in the course and after a few weeks they learned about uh exposure therapy and exposure therapy is the gold standard for any type of anxiety avoidance phobia etc and even in more complex therapies that involve more than just exposure exposure tends to be the thing that really carries the weight in treatment it's the thing that does the most work in treatment so exposure is basically um, whatever the, the person is afraid of, gaining an experience with that thing in the absence of um, avoidance of that thing. So for example, if I uh, had uh, social uh, anxiety, I was really afraid of um, going, let's say, going to gatherings and talking to people. I know that I'll feel awkward and it'll be weird and I'll be, you know, no one will want to talk to me and I'm boring and all these other kind of beliefs. So, so I just avoid all of these parties and social gatherings and stuff like that. Um, so what treatment would be is to, to the extent that I'm comfortable, my therapist wouldn't force me to do anything I didn't want to do, but maybe starting small with talking with one person at a time. And then my therapist and I would set up a whole bunch of homework where I would go and talk to one person at a time, a bunch of times throughout the week. Um, things that would make me a little bit uncomfortable, but not too freaked out until I got used to that and was comfortable with it. And when I'm comfortable with it, I start to realize that I enjoy it, that talking to people is fun, that they're interesting, that they find me interesting. 
And so that motivates me and pushes me to want to do more. And then with my, my therapist may have me go into slightly bigger groups or other things I'm afraid of that are social. And we may do some interpersonal practice in session where they'll pretend to be someone who kind of snide or snubs me a little bit. And I learn how to deal with not only that situation, but the feelings that come from that. Um, so that's an exposure based approach. So when we experience fear, um, the best thing to do is to kind of push ourselves to experience pieces of the things that scare us until we're ready for the big thing that scares us. And then to experience that and continue to experience it until we recognize the fun things about it instead of our brain only focusing on the anxiety provoking and scary things about it. So that's what we would do if little Albert still had problems today. If someone can be in some social settings and not experience symptoms of social anxiety disorder, can they still have it? Um, I think the criteria, I, I, I don't have them perfectly memorized, but I believe the criteria say in most social settings, um, most of the time. So if someone, uh, people with social anxiety often have certain settings where they feel comfortable around maybe safe people or safe situations, um, but predominantly anything outside of the norm uh, would be very anxiety provoking and they would either avoid it or endure it with kind of extreme distress. So technically, yes, um, if someone can be in some social situations and not experience social anxiety, they could still have the disorder, still get a diagnosis um, if it's... Uh, uh, if they're experiencing it most of the time in most situations. Um, now that being said, you know, a diagnosis is just a, a label that we use to kind of help us understand what someone's experiencing and, and determine what treatments might work and things like that. Um, but if someone's experiencing symptoms of social anxiety and more symptoms in more places than they would like, and they'd like to improve that, um, they can still improve that with, with therapy, with treatment. They can still learn to um, enjoy those situations that are very anxiety provoking, or at least tolerate them more easily. Uh, so, you know, whether or not the diagnosis sticks, uh, if the person is, is suffering and it's causing them problems, then it could be something that they could um, work on or receive treatment for. Next question. One thing I've always wondered is do people with mental disorders ever truly recover? I know that people see therapists and take medication, but I want to know how quickly someone could go back to their old ways of thinking and acting. Um, I think I covered this question a lot in the previous um, uh, episode where I talk about like what the common misconceptions are and that, that disorders stay with people forever and they're this thing that's inside of them that never goes away. Um, but I love the way this question is phrased because... Um, how quickly could they go back to their old ways of thinking and acting? And that really is the challenge there. When you um, receive therapy through both medication, especially through um, talk therapy and treatment and behavior change therapies, um, that's a new habit, a new way of being. And sometimes we can go back to our old ways of, of being, especially when we're very stressed, we tend to act in ways that are, um, we have been around, you know, have been with us the most, you know? <laughs> And so um, the, it does, it can happen, it does happen, um, you know, but at the same time, that just means that the person could use um, more exercise of the things that have, the strategies that have um, helped them, whether they do it on their own or with a therapist or whatever, um, that's what that indicates. Um, do people with mental disorders ever truly recover? Absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, some people, you know, with more persistent depression may always have to be attentive to depression. So when they, like with this whole um, COVID situation, folks who have experienced depression in the past may experience a resurgence because a lot of the things that kept them um, thinking and acting in ways that were healthy for them, that were adaptive, um, are taken away. They don't get to see friends and family as much. They uh, Maybe they really love their work and now they have to do it all. It's the human component is removed from that, um, just as an example. Uh, so someone who experienced depression in the past may have to be very careful in that situation. So they may have to find some strategies to getting more social interaction, you know, have, you know, meetups with friends and family on webcam or something like that to kind of keep them um, feeling good and enjoying themselves um, and thus uh, mentally healthier. So yes, people do truly recover. Um, I, I can't say that there's a timeline for how quickly they go back to old ways of thinking that depends on a lot of things, um, mainly depends on uh, stressors and environmental changes that get in the way of the coping strategies they develop to maintain good mental health. I've heard the brain tends to force us to forget certain traumatic events to protect us. Is this true? And if so, how does that work? Um, I'm not sure if the brain um, forces us to forget it um, or what exactly is, ha I don't know that the brain has like a an, an idea of why it's doing it. Um, but yes, there is, during times of the very high um, adrenaline and fear and dissociation, we can either not form memories or not have easy access to those memories. So if someone, especially is in a situation where they're helpless, um, like a, a sexual assault um, or um, an attempted you know, harm or a serious car accident or something like that, um, that we often don't have access to, it's hard for us to access the memories of that. And that is thought to be protective. Um, I'm not sure if it evolved that way or what, but it is certainly for we humans living in current society, it's you know sometimes beneficial to not remember certain aspects of things like um, uh, like pieces of a car accident or something like that. Um, so yes, um, it does kind of uh, do that, but it's not that it forces us to forget them. Um, I believe it's more that uh, we don't necessarily form the memories, or if we do, we don't necessarily integrate them into the rest of our memories as well um, so that we can access them easily. Next question. I feel as if we have gone over a lot about depression. Can you go into detail and provide examples of a manic episode? I know I was having difficulty remembering the difference between all the episodes. So I think I provided a little bit about that before, um, but a full manic episode would be it looks very different for different people. Um, I do have some videos and lectures about that, um, and you can find some decent videos online. Um, there's a, oh gosh, I could, I wish I could remember the name of it, um, but there's a, a series of psychiatry videos put out by psychiatry in uh, Great Britain for the National Health Service. Um, that show examples of people experiencing various mental health issues and how the therapist interviews them and talks with them. And, and, and a manic episode was one of the ones on there. And so people tend to be kind of have a 
a high elated persona they tend to think they have the greatest ideas but these ideas are coming at them very fast uh, and they tend to act on a lot of them so you might see people who you know engage in a lot of risky sexual behavior or you know, you know uh, cash in their retirement savings to make some investments that they're sure will work and make them lots of money or they might notice um, note uh, conspiracies and how they work and spout conspiracy theories and, and things like that you know Every person is different, but the common things about this is that they're having a lot of thoughts all at once. They all seem great, and they have a lot of energy. Um, so that's the best way I can say. And sometimes there is delusion and hallucinations as well in more severe um, episodes. Is anxiety all just fears built up in one's mind and not exactly reasons to be worried? I'm not sure what this person is getting at with this one. Um, so there is something called generalized anxiety disorder, which is the dumbest name for a disorder ever because um, we're terrible at diagnosing it because it has a stupid name. Um, and it's re it's really hard to pick up on the diagnosis. So generalized anxiety disorder is really chronic worry disorder. So it's when someone has a lot of worrying, worried thoughts. They're worried about multiple things. They rec Usually they recognize that not all of those things are worth worrying about. Um, and that causes them to have trouble making decisions, trouble focusing, they feel tense and irritable and anxious all the time. Um, and so um, I think what this question is getting at is, you know, are these, re are these reasons to worry valid um, when someone's experiencing a lot of uh, anxiety around that? So when it comes to generalized anxiety disorder, which a better name again would be chronic worry disorder or something like that. That doesn't really roll off the tongue, so I'm sure there's a better one, but that's the one I usually throw out there to remind people that it's about worry and not just being generally anxious. Um, and so what this means is um, that the things that they worry about, each one of them is probably, they're probably not all valid, but if the if the person could sit down and think about it, they're probably not all, all valid, but a lot of them are. So it's not so much about the content. It's not so much about what they're worrying about. It's about feeling assaulted by these worries and not having ways to cope with them, not having ways to put them aside, not having ways to feel satisfied and accomplished or safe and secure um, because they're kind of assaulted by these thoughts of worries that they can't just shut off and shut down and walk away from. So anxiety isn't just fears build up in someone's mind. It's it's this kind of experience of being assaulted by that, and it has these physiological effects um, that cause us to try to avoid it at all costs. And unfortunately, avoiding it just makes it worse because then it comes back, and then we want to avoid it more. And all those things we do to avoid it tend to be pretty maladaptive when used a lot like distraction um, or drug use or things like that when we when we when that's our go-to way of coping it tends to be problematic when we have to use it all the time um, next question i'm very intrigued to know how mental health corresponds to people with special needs if someone is special needs what is the likelihood that they will also have mental health problems um i think when this person says special needs, they mean um, an intellectual disability. Um, special needs can refer to physical needs as well, so um, sometimes. So I'm thinking this means intellectual dis disability. So um, 
what's the likelihood to have mental health problems? That's a great question. I don't know the likelihood or probability, but I think it comes, again, comes back to coping skills. So there's a reason that schools pay so much attention to people with intellectual disabilities, because if they can learn life skills that they're going to carry through, you know, the rest of their life and into other situations, then they're going to be pretty well off. If they have a lot of people around them supporting them, they're going to be pretty well off. And I'd say they're no more likely to have a mental health problem than someone that doesn't have an intellectual disability. So again, depends on how well they're cared for, how much coping skills um, they have to, to cope with their own um, mental health challenges. After reading some of the texts, I have realized that I'm still not clear if some behavioral disorders are hereditary. Based on your knowledge and your experience, do you feel that certain disorders can be hereditary, like depression, bipolar, and other mental health disorders? Um, I think I answered this question in the last episode, sort of, but can they, the last one, the one in the last episode was more, uh, is it genetic? Um, so this question's more, is it hereditary? So when I hear hereditary, um, what I hear is, you know, does it pass from parents to children? Um, and the answer is yes, and there's many reasons for that. There's genetics, you know, they're, our, they're, our brains are more similarly wired to our parents than they are to random strangers who are not related to us. Um, but also we watch our parents behave. We watch how they solve problems and we mimic that. And so the extent to which they have healthy ways of solving problems will have healthier ways of solving problems, um, both what they directly teach us and what they model for us. Um, so the examples this person gives are depression, bipolar, and other mental health disorders. And as I mentioned, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia are kind of exceptions that they're highly heritable. Um, now I think it's like 50%. So, uh, for schizophrenia and there's various caveats to that. Um, and then bipolar disorder, I think it's a little bit less. So it's still less than half. If your parents have bipolar disorder, for example, that you would have bipolar disorder. I can't remember the exact number, less than half, I'd say. Um, and so those ones are a little different because we, you know, we can very clearly see that there are um, brain differences between folks that do and don't have schizophrenia, for example, especially. But with depression, you know, certainly some of that can be um, inherited from our parents, but also we go through different experiences than our parents. Um, and those experiences play a large role in whether or not we experience depression. So if we are socially ostracized or if we have some traumatic experiences or various other things, um, or if we live in an environment that doesn't really allow us, give us opportunities to feel, um, to do things that make us feel accomplished and happy and satisfied, um, those environmental things are more um, potent. So the reason that it may, you know, that this person may be saying, I'm not sure if they're hereditary or not, is because the it's they certainly are to at least a small degree, sometimes larger, depending on the, the problem. Um, so they certainly are, but the environment plays a huge role as well. All those other factors in a biopsychosocial model, um, or our book talks about a neuropsychosocial model. I, I think they're interchangeable. A biopsychosocial model of mental health issues. Um, all those factors play a role and heredity and biology only play a uh, a piece of that. So yes, but not totally. Yes, they're hereditary, but not, but it's not that simple. Nothing really is. <laughs> Next question. 
is the classification of some disorders dependent on the roles people play in society and in their personal lives. For example, would depression or anxiety for business people in an urban environment still be considered disorders for people who hunt and gather for food in a more natural environment? Great question. I would say that the problems and the causes are likely different, um, but the classification does not differ that much. Now, we do have to remember that the DSM-5 was developed in a largely um, first world, um, you know, developed nation, um, mostly Caucasian men who went into developing, especially the earlier versions of it. So it has biases. I mean, especially in the more modern era, folks tried to get around those biases, be attentive to them, seek information from other um, sources as they developed it. But still, like the people behind this are mostly, you know, people like me, cis, straight, white people. Um, and so there's that issue, right? This doesn't take into account some of these cultural manifestations that may be unique to certain cultures um, or maybe manifest differently. Like maybe a better way of expressing anger in certain culture or expressing depression in certain cultures is to be angry and lash out and withdraw as opposed to look what some look like what someone would con typically consider to be depressed. So um, there are cultural differences in how these things look. Um, but generally, um, the classification system is similar in that we look like for depression, this person mentioned depression. Yes. Um, oh, anxiety as well. So anxiety, you would still see people with uh, hyperarousal physiologically. You would see them um, avoiding things that they um, are afraid of. You would see them expressing fear. You would see them uh, and that sort of thing. So those things are kind of common, right? Common across, uh, across cultures. Now, what they might be avoiding... Um, what they might be afraid of would be very different. But the fact they're afraid of something and avoiding it is going to be common across cultures. So certain things about these diagnoses um, may manifest differently, but the, the general kind of gist of them, the, the um, meaning behind them are similar across cultures. And the ones that have a much more biological, um, uh, strong biological factor like schizophrenia look pretty similar across cultures. Uh, again, the voices someone may hear, the hallucinations they may have, the delusions they may have are different. But the fact that they have hallucinations, delusions, etc., is common across cultures. A few more questions for this episode. Uh, in your expertise, would you say that some, if not much, of the research regarding mental health is inaccurate and or exaggerated, and thus causing greater confusion and fear within those ingesting these researches. I ask because in listening to the lecture regarding research studies, you mentioned the Daily Mail, a fairly popular new platform, and wondered what else are scientists, researchers feeding us that may not be completely true. Also, how can we sift through what is the truth from the errors, and how can we protect and maintain our mental, emotional health, when regarding such biased information? Well, I would say that this person, this is an absolutely excellent question and it is super relevant for these times. And I can say that the challenge here is what they are looking at is not research. What they are looking at is someone reporting on research and interpreting it in a way that makes some wonderful clickbait um, and that people are gonna wanna click on and look at because it says things like that. So let me give you my favorite example. And I can't remember if I did this in a lecture or not. So I did a study looking on it, the physi physiological effects of an apology. So I brought people in 
Um, I hooked him up to blood pressure and cardiovascular monitoring. And um, uh, I basically kind of insulted them a little bit. I had them do a study or do a task and I told them that they weren't doing well with it and I was kind of rude. Um, and then afterwards, half of them I apologized to and half of them I didn't. Um, and uh, what I saw for among the women in the sample is that um, they their blood pressure and heart rate were reduced after the apology, whereas the ones that didn't get the apology maintained a higher blood pressure and heart rate until the um, uh, for a longer period of time afterwards. So the apology helped them recover physiologically. Um, and um, my that study was covered in the Telegraph, I think, the UK Telegraph. And the headline was, not apologizing to women will give them a heart attack. Now, my study said nothing about that. All it said that, you know, for an extra five minutes, <laughs> women were upset if they didn't get receive an apology. That's really like when you drill down into the data. They were physiologically perturbed. It didn't say, like, I don't know if that will cause a heart attack. I know that causes might cause more wear and tear on the cardiovascular system throughout their life, but we don't know if that will cause a heart attack. We don't know if this generalizes outside of the lab. This was the first study in what could have been, I went different direction with my research, but what could have been a whole series of studies looking at this. So, but that was a sexy headline, and people clicked on it. I emailed them and told them to take it down because it was crap, but they didn't, of course, any respond. Um... But that's not research. People think research nowadays is Googling stuff and reading whatever comes up. That's not research. Scientific research uh, comes from people like me and other scientists who do things very legitimately. And we publish in um, medical, psychological, etc. journals. Those journals are peer-reviewed, so some, like th two to three other scientists will read every article I submit um, to determine if I got it right. And look for mistakes that I made and have me correct them. Um, and if I can't correct them, they won't publish it. Or if they don't think it's interesting, they won't publish it. Um, the problem with today is that a lot of these are hidden behind paywalls. Um, now through ECU, if you're a part of a university, there are subscriptions to tons and tons of medical and psychological journals. So you can go get those really easily. Um, if you are on um, campus and you're plugged into your campus's network, you can even use Google Scholar and get copies of these. Now, you know, it's hard to interpret these studies, right? Because it's one study that is, you know, one piece of a giant, a whole, like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of studies that are all supporting certain conclusions. Um, like I keep saying that um, exposure is the best treatment for anxiety. That's hundreds and hundreds of studies that go into kind of supporting that idea, not just one. Although, you know, each, any one could, but it only tells you a little piece of the puzzle. So you need to go to reputable sources and they are online, but you need to go to reputable sources that have read and interpreted those studies correctly and aren't just trying for clickbait. So you might want to go to the CDC, to the American Psychological Association called the APA, um, to other, to Mayo Clinic, to other mental health and physical health um, uh, establishments that are going to have fact sheets that are helpful. That being said, we as scientists really suck about getting our stuff out there. That's why I do this podcast, which frankly has like, you know, not a lot of subscribers. And one of them at least is my mom. And one of them is my brother. And one of them is me. And one of them is my wife. So, you know, this is my way of getting stuff out there. But it's not, it doesn't have the type of penetration um, that um, like a TED Talk has. And TED Talks are not peer reviewed. Some of them are wonderful. Some of them are absolute garbage. 
um, in terms of they always say it beautifully, but what they say can be absolute garbage. And I think I showed you one earlier in this in the year that that um, was a guy saying that all mental health disorders should be called brain disorders because it's all about the brain, and it's not. We know that it's about how it the brain is a large component, but it's about how the brain responds to the environment and to our behavior and a million other things. It was just a terrible oversimplification, um, and it's not accurate. Um, and so I, I agree with this person that this is causing a lot of confusion and fear. And that is why I will reiterate my biggest misconception. Uh, the biggest misconception about mental health is that it is incurable, that it's biological, um, and that someone will have to live with it for the rest of their life. And by and large, for most mental health issues, that is not the case. And for the ones that they will have to live with for the rest of their life, so to speak, um, it's just they can get to a very healthy and happy level of functioning and learn how and have to learn how to keep it from happening again. Now, again, there's a proportion of people that are that um, a lot of treatments do not work um, and, and that sort of thing. You have treatment resistant depression. You have, you have you, I, I don't want to give this Pollyannish view that everyone who has a mental health issue can be fine, but the vast, vast majority treatment will be good treatment accurate treatment science-based treatment will be effective great question all right second last one is Tourette's syndrome considered a psychological disorder and is it treatable um it, it's in the in the dsm in the the, the diagnostic manual for um, psychiatric issues but it, it's considered a neurological problem um, it is treatable. There are medications and also behavioral strategies that people can use to learn to um, interrupt. Tourette's involves vocal and motor tics um, to interrupt the the tics and things like that. Just like you know, I talked about anger and how there's like <laughs> there's anger and there's action and there's you just kind of learn to extend that period of time in between so you can insert insert different behaviors. That's possible to a degree with Tourette's, um, but a lot of it too is learning how to you know, live with that problem to say to, you know, when you meet other people to be able to say, you know, I have Tourette's and I, I do this and just ignore it. I do. Um, and here's what we're, you know, it makes it hard for me to get words out sometimes, but you know, just be patient and I'll get there. Um, so there's that. And there are strategies to help with fluency and things like that. So yes, it, it is treatable. Um, it's in the DSM. I don't, I, it, it's, so it's kind of considered a psychological disorder. It's called a, considered a psychiatric disorder at least. Um, so, yeah. Neat question there. Last question for this episode. After reading about the Treatment of Depression Collaborative Research Program and working as a nurse, I'm interested in ways we can improve our substance abuse programs. I like the idea of needle exchanges and programs other countries offer like safe injection slash use centers. My question is, if the U.S. adopted a program like this where individuals with substance abuse issues had a safe place for use so that this that also establish a working relationship with a counselor or substance abuse professional do you think this could help curb the stigma around drug use and improve the substance abuse problems we see today um i think it might be a piece of the puzzle i think that in the u.s we have problems with the idea of making it easier for people to use um even though that there is some research demonstrating that if we do these kind of things and have support around that so people have a safe place to use but also they are if they come to that place they have the opportunity for counseling opportunities for people to help them quit so we want to keep them it's a harm reduction approach is what it's called we want to keep people 
um, safe from contracting um, HIV and other illnesses through needles or getting infection or overdosing and those kind of things. We want to create, we want to keep that from happening long enough so that they can effectively uh, get into treatment to help them uh, quit. Um, now, when you know, with when we're talking about injection, we're talking about heroin and things like that. So we're talking about quit. There this is different from alcohol, where you know you can have abstinence and you can have moderation, and for different individuals, different ones work. But you know, heroin it's basically quit or not quit. <laughs> um, I don't know. There isn't there isn't really a safe level of heroin use. Um, so um, I, I think it it would help, but it's also part of a larger program, like making those drugs less available, making sure people have um, Narcan, which reverses the um, effects of heroin's kind of emergency uh, thing if someone is overdosing, um, to making sure those things are in place as well. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that, um, from my understanding, like some of these programs where they actually have um, safe places where people can use and needle exchanges, so the, those can be thought of as kind of enabling. Um, but in reality, it's a harm reduction approach, and it reduces the um, probability of someone um, doing something irreversible like overdosing or, um, or getting AIDS, all that's somewhat reversible now, um, or something like that, until, and it forces them to get in contact with um, medical and mental health professionals who can try to help them get sober and clean and, and, and that sort of thing. So it's a little counterintuitive to start, but when you see it as part of a larger system um, that has the main goal of keeping people healthy and alive until they can get the treatment that they need and providing those treatment resources, then it could be something that could be helpful. I think there, that would have to be studied and checked into. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily quoting the literature right now um, specifically for this program. Um, but yeah, these things can kind of uh, can be helpful. All right, well, that wraps up episode number two. I've got anonymous question round two that'll probably be split into two episodes as well uh, coming up uh, after a, a bit after I release these two. Thank you for listening.